Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The, uh, the Bible reading is from the book of Esther and it begins on page 503. Uh, we're reading from chapter 2 verses 21 to chapter 3 verse 15 and then we're reading from chapter 4 verse 9 to verse 17. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamidatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour, higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, they wrote out in the, in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the, same, see, these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. At the beginning of chapter 4, we read of Mordecai's mourning over the edict and urging Queen Esther to go into the king's presence and to plead for the Jews. And we pick up the story again from chapter 4, verse 9. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. Father, do help us to receive your word tonight, we pray. We do pray that we would be those who hear it, uh, who accept it and who obey it. And we pray that we would be strengthened by it and it may bring us great joy as we seek to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're sitting down, do turn back to Esther chapter 3. And that's where we will uh, be starting this evening. Uh, today we've heard it's uh, Trinity Sunday, uh, the day when we celebrate our God, Father, Son and Spirit. And we've sung great things about our God, that we want to follow our God, we want to be those who have faith in him and who walk that walk of faith. Uh, those as we sang in the, the second song, who give our all to him, who give everything to him. Well tonight as we uh, think on this Trinity Sunday, the passage that we are looking at tonight raises the question for us, can we trust this God? Is this God a faithful God? Is the question that the passage will raise. Let me show you how we see that. It happens through the conflict we see in chapter 3. We're introduced to the enemy in chapter 3. And as we go on, we'll see that he's not a new enemy, but he is an ancient enemy come back. Haman is mentioned, perhaps when we have Haman, we could have a bit of pantomime, but you could almost have when Haman's mentioned, everybody's saying boo, because he is the enemy. And we know we should say boo right from the first mention of him. Just look to see how, what his name is. In verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, 
on page 503. He is Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. Oh, now there's an interesting name. Easy to skip over the name, which I did when I first read this. But the Agagite is a really significant thing. You see, he's an Agagite, which means he came from the line of King Agag. And for those who know your biblical history, King Agag was one of the enemies of God's people at the time of King Saul. King Saul fought against Agag. And now you see it's even more significant when you see how Mordecai, Esther's cousin, was described when he was first introduced. You see that in chapter 2, verse 5. You see, he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, the son of Kish. That was also whom Saul was a son of. You see, Saul was and Mordecai were both sons of Kish. And here now, again, is being replayed an ancient battle between the descendants of King Saul and King Agag. And the conflict in Esther 3 is as extreme as it could get. You see that after Haman is elevated to this high position and the king commands everyone to kneel. And then as he sweeps through the court, I imagine him almost like a proud newspaper editor, sweeping through the newsroom to his office. Everybody else is a bit beneath him. He doesn't really look at them. And yet there's one person who doesn't bow down, and that is Mordecai. And when Haman is told that Mordecai doesn't bow down, he's enraged. His honor is slighted. And yet it's in verse 6, which is so shocking, You see what it said there? Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Just wow, that's just unbelievable, isn't it? If there ever was an over-the-top reaction, then there it is. You see, this enemy of God's people, the Jews, draws up legislation which is going to include in the Queen's speech or maybe the King's speech. And the legislation then would be be drawn up and would be passed into law. And the law was what says in verse 13. The order was to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. Now here's a threatened genocide being passed into law. And just see the way it is described. The language is over the top. You think it might have been enough to say he was going to destroy all the Jews or to say he was going to kill all the Jews or to annihilate all the Jews. And yet not only does he use one, he uses all three of those things to kill, destroy and annihilate all the Jews. You see, here is a conflict which has its roots in history. And yet the conflict, as you read back, goes even further than Saul and Agag. You see, because King Agag was an Amalekite. And an Amalekite was an enemy of God's people right from the beginning of their history. When God's people were saved from Egypt, they were taken out and they crossed the Red Sea. And just as they got across, then King Amalek came up against God's people to seek to destroy them and to fight against them. After 430 years in slavery, these people came up to seek to destroy God's people. You can read all about it in Exodus 17. And at the end of Exodus 17, God says this. 
I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God makes a promise that he will judge the people, the Amalekites, for their sinfulness and their disobedience. And so when we get to Esther 3, we see that same conflict being played out again. And will God remember his promise? When God says he will defeat his enemies and the enemies of his people, will he do it? Is God faithful to his promise? Well, the stakes were high for Esther, but they were also high for us too, because we also are the people of God. God promises that he will defeat the enemies of his people. The one such promise is that God says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God says the church will always continue. There will always be a church. There will always be a people of God. And the enemies of God's people will not prevail against his church. Is that true? Esther 3 raises the question for us. Can we trust God to do what he says he will do? Will God's church spread and grow over this world? Often it seems that the church is attacked from all sides and by many people and in many places. Will the church continue to thrive and to grow? And as we ask that question, is God faithful? It raises other questions for us. Is it worth giving my all to this task of spreading this gospel around the world? You see, God calls us to be those who give ourselves to the task of making disciples, give themselves to the task of building the church, building the people of God. In this church, we often speak about planting churches and wanting to see churches planted all over the city and for people to become Christians all over the city and to be added to the people of God. Is it worth giving ourselves fully to that task? You see, if God's not faithful, then it's doubtful whether we'd want to give ourselves fully to the task. See, it would shake our confidence in the words we've just sang. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We will walk by faith and not by sight. Is that confidence justified? Will God be faithful to his word? Well, we need to read on. In chapter 4 that we read, if you flick over the page, we saw Esther was scared. She didn't want to go into the king, quite rightly, because she might die. And yet she's persuaded to go into the king by Mordecai. And so in chapter 5, we read that she goes into the throne room of Xerxes. So look at verse 2 of chapter 5. Where it says, when he, that's King Xerxes, saw Esther standing in the court. Now what you're going to do is he sees Esther standing there. Well, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. And so Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The first hurdle is over and the plan that Esther has devised is now put into motion. She invites the king and Haman to come to a banquet, which she's going to lay on for them. That's what we see in the next little section. 
And then the king says, what do you want, Esther? Why have you invited me to the banquet? And she says, come back to another banquet tomorrow, you and and Haman. And so they go away. And then the second half of uh, chapter five and into chapter six, we read what happens between these two banquets. Between the two banquets where Esther has no control of what's going to happen. At first we read of of, of Haman. Now Haman's cock a hoop. He's been invited to the banquet, only him and the king and, the, and Esther. And he can't help it. He boasts to his family and friends. Just look at, at verse 11 of chapter 5. Now Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Now I was always taught that no one likes a boaster. And here's here's Haman, he is the boaster par excellence. And the only thing which can rain on Haman's party at this point is Mordecai. You see what it says in verse 13. He continues speaking to his, his wife and friends. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. And so his wife and friends give him some after-dinner advice. We see it in verse 14. They say to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. 75 foot high gallows. It's just extraordinary. That, I worked it out, it's about 23 metres high, which is about the, the height of five and a half double-decker buses on top of each other. The height of the gallows to hang a man was almost as big as Haman's ego. And while Haman is boasting about all how great he is and about how the king loves him and how Esther loves him, the king can't sleep. You see it in 6.1? That night, the king could not sleep. Maybe he's eaten a bit too much at Esther's banquet and got a bit of a stomach pain and couldn't, couldn't sleep. He can't sleep. And so what does he do? Well, he orders that the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, be brought in and read to him. Well, I guess if anything's going to put you to sleep, it would be something like that. And so, lo and behold, on the night he can't sleep between these two banquets, he has the records brought to him, and they open it up and start reading. And where do they start to read? Look at verse 2. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthena and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Do you remember that incident? It happened a number of years before. But on this night... Between the two banquets, the king was reminded about what Mordecai, the Jew, had done. And what we find following this is probably what one one commentator says is the most ironically comic sections of the whole Bible. You see, look at verse 4. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Now you can see what's going to happen, can't you? Now Haman wants to kill Mordecai and the king wants to honour Mordecai. And so just look at verse 6. 
When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? You see what Haman's thinking? Oh yes, this is the moment. The king wants to honor me. And so he sets off pondering all those things that he's daydreamed about for years, about the king doing for him. And so he says, oh well, I've always dreamed about wearing that purple cloak that you have, not the one with the nice silver threads through it, the one that everybody knows that you wear that was really expensive. I think they should wear that. And he goes on, oh, actually, I think you'd also want to put them on one of your horses, one of those ones that's got that big piece of bling on its forehead, that royal crest. And also, just make sure that everybody sees this person. I think you should have somebody walking alongside them, shouting out that this is the one that the king loves to honor. Yes, I think that would be great, King Xerxes. And you can just almost see him rubbing his hands, thinking this is going to be brilliant. And so he hears the words, what he asks for in verses 7 to 9. And in verse 10, the king says, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. And we wait for those cringe-worthy words to come, don't we? For Mordecai, the Jew. And so Haman, the hater of Mordecai, the Jew, leads him around the city, sitting on the horse that he wants to sit on, wearing the cloak that he wants to be wearing, hearing the words that he wants to hear about himself coming from his own mouth. How those words must have stuck in his throat. And after a quick trip home to tell his wife the disaster that's just happened, the chapter ends in verse 14. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. I wonder what Mordecai is thinking at that point. Maybe thinking, well, it's been a bad day, but at least I get to go to a banquet with the, the king and with Esther. Mordecai doesn't get that. Well, little does he know. You see, as they're eating this second banquet, Xerxes asks Esther again what she wants. And the moment has come for Esther. She takes the deep breath. This life-defining moment comes to its head here. And in verse 3, we see what she says of chapter 7. If I found favor with you, O king, And if it pleases your majesty, grant my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. You see, Esther, at this moment where she's been living, hiding her identity as a Jew, now ties her fate up with all the other Jews and asks the king to grant her life and her people's life. What's the king going to do? Verse 5, he asks her, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And as those words are spoken, you can imagine the camera just starting to bring Haman into focus. And we see Esther's head turning to him and her finger pointing at him. And the words coming, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. And so what's going to happen now? Well, we see that the king storms out the French doors into the garden, tearing his hair out. What's he going to do? 
You can imagine him debating to himself, Haman, my most trusted advisor, Esther, my beautiful wife, and I signed off on all of this. And while uh, the king is stormed off into the garden, Haman stays behind with the queen and he begs her for his life. And for some inexplicable reason, he falls on the queen. Look at verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in in the house? And it seems at that point that Haman's fate is sealed. And then uh, you've got to love Harbona who comes next. It's Harbona's second cameo in the book. And he drops in uh, some helpful information uh, for the king. Now for me it's quite darkly comic, but it is quite uh, funny. You can see it in verse 9. Lord, I thought you might want to know... A gallows 70 feet high has, it stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Just thought you might like to know that little piece of information. And the king says, hang him on it. You see the process. The enemy of God's people is now done away with. You see the question, will God be faithful to his promise to his people Yes, he will. And yet it happens through a series of coincidences and through the bravery of Esther. You see, in some ways, the deliverance happens not through some extraordinary miracle, rather through the ordinary actions of Esther and through God bringing other ordinary things to pass. Think about it, the king not being able to sleep on that particular night and asking for the records of his reign to be read and the pages to fall open on the page that tells about Mordecai saving him. Through Haman's own hatred and arrogance and building such a ridiculous gallows. Through all the years before as Esther became queen. In all of this, God was working his purpose out. God was being faithful to his promise. You see, God's God was sovereignly bringing his plan and his purpose for his people to bear. You see, we can trust God to be faithful. Faithful to his promises to build his church. But it leaves us with the question of where do we fit into God's sovereign purpose? You see, God is sovereignly working his purpose out, but how do we fit into that? Well, to see that, we see in the, the, the speech that Mordecai gives to Esther in chapter 4. So I flick back a couple of pages to what we skipped in chapter 4. You see, here is Esther's defining decision. Now, Mordecai had pleaded with Esther to go to the king Esther knew it was a dangerous task and she didn't want to do it because she knew she may die. It was against the law to go into the king. The law was severe, it was death. But Mordecai's response is remarkable remarkable to Esther. We see it in verse 14. It says, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. 
but you and your, family, your father's family will perish. Mordecai has a remarkable confidence in the, well, what we would call the sovereignty of God, although he doesn't mention God. He sees that deliverance would arise from another place. It's a remarkable confidence shown by Mordecai. Yes, what he says to Esther next, which is so significant. You see how he finishes in verse 14. And who knows but that you, Esther, have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther had been queen for five years. And Mordecai said, it may all have been leading to this moment, Esther. The point when you could stand up and save God's people. Maybe God's been bringing you to this point so you can do this now. And as, God, as uh, Mordecai said that to Esther, we don't know uh, what she must have felt. Maybe she looked back on her the past five and ten, or ten years and said, but Mordecai, we kept quiet about our Jewish identity. We hid that we were Jews. We can't stand up for God at this time now, can we? Maybe she said, but, but Mordecai, I'm married to a pagan Gentile king. I'm unclean because of what I've done and what's happened to me. I can't do this now. She might have said, Mordecai, I've been pushed and pulled by others all my life. I'm weak and powerless to do anything. And she might have even thought, but Mordecai, my life in this palace is comfortable. I've got servants. It's a nice place to be. I don't want to put that all in jeopardy by standing up for this. See, looking at all those things, she might have just thought, I can't do it. I don't want to stand up for God's people at this time. I can't make my stand. There must be someone else. And maybe we think the same as that. When we hear the call to give ourselves fully to God's plan and purpose, we, we sang it tonight, didn't we, with that? We give our all. We give you everything. We think about giving ourselves fully to that plan and that purpose, the plan to go and make disciples, to go and speak of God and his plan and his purpose of this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus and all that he's done. And we just think, I can't. We might think, well, what have I done in the past? All those sins, those choices that I've made, they've ruled me out of standing up for God or anything to do with him. We might think we've sinned too greatly to do anything for God now. Or it might be that you've been keeping quiet about your faith in Christ, blending in, living under the radar. And to stand up and reveal that you're a Christian now and to live wholeheartedly for Christ tomorrow morning at work would be scary. People would say, but you can't be a Christian. We know you. We know what you've done. That can be scary. Now, there are times when I worry about uh, meeting old friends, maybe school friends or uh, uni friends or work colleagues, and then talking to them about what I do and say I, I work in Christian ministry in a church in Sheffield. I worry because I think, what will they say to me? You see, they know all about my life and what I have done. I worry that they'll say, you're just a hypocrite. We saw what you did in the past. 
And so it's easy to think, I can't do anything for God. I can't follow him. But you see, the challenge for us is the same as Mordecai gave to Esther in verse 14. Who knows but that you have come to this position for such a time as this. You see, the position that you're in now may be the place that God was bringing to you for such a time as this. You might be in your particular school class or uni society or in your particular boring, hard, tedious job or in your family or in your position in society for such a time as this. And tonight, maybe God's calling you to give yourselves fully to his plan and purposes in the world. And you don't know what the consequences are. As Esther will go on to say, if I perish, I perish. As you do that, you don't know what will happen. You may lose face. You might be slandered. You might be thought of badly by others. But if God is faithful to his plans and his purposes, then it would be worth it. You see, when we think about working in the world, God's sovereignty doesn't work above us and over our heads. It works in our everyday moments, in our everyday situations. And God tonight may be calling you to think, why are you in the position where you are? And those past decisions and things that you've done, don't you count you out for standing up for him now? You see, Esther may have thought all of those things. And yet we see the change in her in verse 4.15. In the first four chapters of Esther, she is weak and passive, pushed and pulled by others. And in verse 15, she starts issuing the orders. And see verse, or verse 16 it really is. Esther says, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, Esther, meek and mild, is now standing up and commanding the people. Esther is now brave, standing up for God and his people realizing that maybe she had been brought to such a time for this moment. And so she stands up for God. And tonight, who knows, but that you have come to this position where you are for such a time as this. Well, let me lead us in a prayer. The writer to the Hebrew says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He goes on, and do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Father, we thank you for showing us again tonight that you are faithful. We thank you for showing us again tonight that you are sovereign. And we pray that you would uh, help us to stand firm in our faith 
and to give ourselves to your will and your purpose in the world. We pray that you would help us not to shrink back, but to live live boldly for you this week. We pray for us, and if that may be a difficult and scary and hard thing for us to do, would you give us the confidence and the boldness to to do that? Give us the confidence that you are faithful and what you promise is true and real. And Father, would you take us and use us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.